You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. From our studio to yours, this is Various Artists. Ahi ahi maria, tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Nicholas toko ingoa. Ko Beth toko ingoa. No mai hari mai ki Various Artists mō tēnei wiki. E nei, coming up on the show today. I'll be speaking to artistic director and writer Tane Mahuta Gray about his show Hatupatu, Kudu Naituku, A Forbidden Love, and the Pudako behind the show, as well as the De La Guada inspiration. I speak to musician Ewan Collins about his experience composing for Red Mole, a romance, a documentary about 1970s alternative Aotearoa theatre group Red Mole. I'm also speaking to art historian. Christina Burton about what she'll be speaking on at Art Spaces, the In and Out of It Symposium, including how art shapes us in the present and connects us to the past. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So Tukupatui Mai. Get in touch, you can text us on 5395 or Why Give us a call in the studio on 309-3879. Also after the show. Kawa e wariwari e ahe ana koto te fakorongo ki e nei kōrero ano hei pakehere roki roki marunga e te pai tukutuku o Erirangi Poho ma Hairi ki 95BFM ira kati kom. You can catch all of these chats and more by podcast on the 95BFM website 95BFM.com. Last week I spoke to Professor Annie Goldson about her documentary on the 1970s Aotearoa alternative theatre group Red Mole. This week I spoke with the composer of the documentary, Ewan Collins, about his experience composing for the documentary, his writing process and his musical approaches. Here is that interview. How much creative freedom did you enjoy while composing for Red Mole? Well, there were two kind of modes of composition in it. One mode was kind of trying to be diegetic, so trying to sound like music that actually existed at the time. For doing that kind of work, I didn't have that much freedom because I wanted to be true to the time of Red Mole. The other kind of composition I did was the actual film soundtrack, where I was basically allowed to do whatever I want as long as I felt it served the narrative of the film. So a lot of that music, which is on the soundtrack album as well, is a lot more of my style and less of that kind of historical sound. Did the tone of the story and of the film affect your writing process? Yeah, so I was actually brought on quite early on in the film and the tone of some of those early edits of the film were quite different than what the final product ended up being. And so there was quite a big shift in what I did with my music when I saw the kind of new direction that we were taking the story in. Was this a different experience from how you generally work? Mm. Yeah, well, the way I compose is really different based on what I'm composing for. And this was my first feature-length film doing the composing for. So it was quite unique in that aspect. And also one thing that was unique with Red Mole is they have so much of their own music. So my pieces for this film are not 10-minute long epics. Rather, they're just one-minute, two-minute long cues that fit between Red Mole's own narrative and their own music. So it was quite different from what I usually do because I had to fit the whole piece's worth of music 
in such a small amount of time to make it fit within the edit of the film. Did you find that to be a challenge? Uh, it was definitely hard at some points, especially near the beginning of the film. It took a while to get a handle of it because during the early edits of the film, it sounded like every one of my music cues was just completely different from each other and it felt very disjointed and bitty, if that makes sense. But then by the final version of the film, even though there's new music cues popping up left, right and centre, they all work together rather than feeling like a mess, which it did at one point. Mm. Once you composed the pieces, how did you record them? Did you collaborate with others at all? Did you use platforms like Logic or did you yeah, work with I... a MIDI keyboard or anything? Actually, for this one, no. For this one, everything is me. So I don't play all the instruments on the album, but I've had to use a lot of virtual instruments to get it all going, which takes quite a lot of work to make it sound as if there's real players. Um, really, because of time constraints and budget constraints, that's what we could do. I mainly compose in Logic. I'm a big fan of sequences, so I don't play keyboard in. I just write it directly in. I know what notes I want. I just type them in the computer. And also for all the mix downs, we use Pro Tools and Reaper, among others. Going into the film, sort of knowing you were writing for this project, did you sort of have an idea in mind? Or did it all just sort of come to you in a natural process as time progressed? Yeah, so like I talked about before with the two types of music, the diegetic music and the non-diegetic, the diegetic was what I did first because we knew that Red Mole were around at a certain time period and they went to certain places, so we knew we needed to have music that sounded like that. But the biggest challenge came when it came around to actually doing the soundtrack, the original film score. The difficulty with that was how do I make modern music? And like I said just before, it's all done in a computer, right? How do I make modern music in a computer that makes sense for a theatre troupe that were very non-computer and not digital? So it took a lot of, actually not too many, but it took a few attempts to figure out what kind of sonic palette would make sense. So there is actually quite a lot of synthesizers on the soundtrack. But weirdly, it works. So I had to be careful with my selection of when to use them and not to not make it sound like some synthy soundtrack, but instead sound like something that actually matched what Red Mole were about. Yeah, I totally felt that when watching it. I found it fit really well and the pieces complemented, you know, the, the ethos and, and the, the style of the documentary as well, but it also didn't distract yeah, it's tricky because I want to write the best music I can, but I also want audiences to leave with the musical highlight being Red Mole themselves. I don't want to take away from their star power, if that makes sense. Like, they're the stars of the movie, not me. So even though I'm writing the best music I can, it needs to be that Red Mole are the real stars. Yeah, I guess that's the, um, the interesting thing about sort of writing for that context, perhaps. Yeah, it is a tricky balance. And another issue with that was also making sure that it was clear when it was their sound and when it was mine because we used some archived music in the soundtrack, which I restored for the film. So that is Red Mole and Red Mole's associated acts actually playing. And I don't want someone to hear my music and think it's them. And I definitely don't want someone to hear my music and think it was Red Mole's. Do you think you may work on more documentaries or projects like this or would you like to? Yeah, I definitely liked working with a documentary even though it is quite a heavy weight on you because when you score a narrative in fiction, there's no real people who can be upset, right? But for a documentary, you're telling not only a 
tragic and meaningful story, but one that actually happened to real people and still has aftershocks today. Um, and so while that's a challenge and quite a heavy burden, it also kind of deepens the writing process, um, especially when I can think and I've talked to some of the real life people and that can influence what you do too. So it has this extra narrative where you can't really talk to a fictional character in the same way and get that from it. That was musician Ewan Collins speaking to me about his experience composing for Red Mole, a romance. Stephanie says that she wants to know why she's given half her life to people she hates now Stephanie says Stephanie says When answering the phone Answering the phone What country shall I say is calling From across the world But she's not afraid to die The people all Call her Alaska Between worlds So the people ask her Cause it's all in her mind It's all in her mind Stephanie says Stephanie says That she wants to She's the dawn She can't be alone Stephanie says Stephanie says But doesn't hang up the phone Hang up the phone What seashell see is calling Between worlds so the people ask her Cause it's all in her mind It's all in her mind They're asking is it good or bad It's such an icy feeling It's so cold in Alaska metal band Mr Bungle make their highly anticipated return with the raging wrath of Australia and New Zealand tour. Live at the Auckland Town Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. The Bungles are set to thrash with an electrifying performance and wild antics. Mr Bungle joined by fellow pop stars Melvins at the Auckland Town Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. For complete tour and ticket information, visit livenation.co.nz. 
Get into the flow state with functional mushrooms. Flow state has a range of adaptogenic organic mushroom extracts to help put you in whatever zone you need. Including lion's mane for focus and brain function, cordyceps for athletic performance, and reishi for overall health. Available in supplement form or as a powder for mixing. Third party tested for safety and potency. For more info, go to flowstate.nz. We played it first. Hey, Captain, do you think we'll ever find the land of the Groove? Groove? Patience, Sonny Jim. It's just, we've been floating on this dinghy for months. Months? Since the crew mutiny. Patience, Sonny Jim. It's concerning that you keep repeating that. Repeating that. I don't even think my name is Sonny Jim. My name is Sonny Jim. Is that my name? <laughs> Captain. Patience, Captain. Sonny Jim. I am Sonny Jim. We are both Sonny Jim. Lando, we made it. Let's drink some more seawater to celebrate. Land of the Good Groove with Murray Kamek. Bringing a solid hour of funk, electricity and soul to your Friday afternoons. Land of the Good Groove, 1 till 2 p.m. every Friday right here on 95BFM. Not quite Francis and Liam anymore. Nicholas and Beth now. But we do miss them. Hatu Patu and Kuru Naitoku, a forbidden love, provides a reimagining of a Te Arawa Pudako. The Pudako tells the story of Hatu Patu, a young warrior who was captured by a part woman, part bird creature named Kuru Naitoku. Artistic director and writer Tane Mahu Tigray provides a humanistic and romantic portrayal of the Pudako that delves into the nuances of the pair's relationship. With a performance design influenced by the aerial style of De La Guada, Hatupatu and Kuru Naituku, a forbidden love, provides an immersive experience for attendees. I spoke to artistic director and writer Tane Mahu Tigray about the Pudako behind the show, as well as the De La Guada inspiration. or as we've named it the show, Hatsupatsu, Kudu Naituku, Forbidden Love. We, we've taken the Te Arawa version of it, although there are versions uh, relating to Kudu Naituku, the bird woman, Ngāti Rokawa, Tūwhare Toa, and also Tainui Waikato also have a connection through to Kudu Naituku as well. So but we've been given permission to tell the Te Arawa story, of which Hatsupatsu is one of the Tupuna descendants who travelled on the Te Arawa Waka uh, from Tahiti across to Aotearoa. 
back in the twelfth uh, century. So the that that that's the base of of um, the whakapapa that we're following through with Hatu Patu. And for us, the uh, up for this story, it's interesting it's Kuna Naituku because she is also known as Hine Te Ingo Ingo and, um, and was an actual tūpuna and, and kind of a fascinating woman too. So from Kororo, from Richard Farirahi and, and his family, who are direct descendants of him, uh, of Kuna Naituku, there, that was as if she was a bit of a, a, a wahine, the uh, but uh, who was... A, a wahine who probably a little bit like a hermit who lived in the forest and would snare her birds with the thrusting spears, and so that's where one of her names, Kurunga Ituku, uh, comes from. Um, uh, the, the thrusting um, of the pal of the spear, Kurunga Ituku, to thrust that. Um, so we've really kind of brought the story in this one towards also honouring the tupuna and the, the wahine, the, the woman that she was as well as her connection to to the mystical story then the mythic Puraka of, of this hybrid human bird woman within the, within the show. So we've kind of really honoured that and really uplift Kuru Naituku's story. And and a lot of the corridor that you see in storybooks, say by A.W. Reid and, and other writers about Hachipatsu and Kuru Naituku, really has Kuru Naituku really as this kind of bit more fierce, seemingly bird woman who captured Hachipatsu and... Um, uh, for her own, um, in a way, to treat them as a, like a pet and and um, an incarceration for the four months that when you captured him from, we believe it's from about May, June, that the capturing would have happened because that's usually the bird hunting season for Kiladu, or was at the time, and he would have spent four months in her cave. So the, those four months, uh, we, we're working with that, that proviso that a relationship built of, of that, that time and that there is also an element that they they, they also bore a child too, which was uh, where the fuck of the directs through uh, through the Fadirahi line. But so just kind of noting that element. So we've gone where there was a forbidden love, a, a relationship that built there, and where Hatsupatsu really grew a lot of his extra skills and abilities. That that made him when he when he was able to return home, become a leader in waiting for his people, and eventually a leader for his for his iwi. So. The, so that's a really kind of interesting context to take that the mythic element of Kurunaituku being a little bit demonised and a little bit of the talking, very kind of patriarchal view. A lot of our story took that kind of lens, and it wasn't until Fiki Hiriaka's beautiful book Kurunaituku that the name of that really kind of brought the mana back to Kurunaituku. And and and, uh, she, and that book she's named Kurunaituku, which is another name for her as well. And Kura something of a beautiful red ornament, a, a, a gorgeousness, something very precious, the word of Kura. And so, uh, again, another corridor uh, around the naming of, of Kura Motuku. So for us, it's been really beautiful, because we can also be to Mibitai Nātai from Tamatai Rai Yorehu. His song, Karamalanis, um, has really helped to imbue us uh, with his knowledge of the story. He was talking about Kuranga Ituku, Kuranga Ituku uh, being the... the, the the hermit lady who, who used to spare, spare birds and was a kind of a uh, enigma within within the community at the time. And then also we've had Hone Papasuki, um, who's from Nasi Waikau, and he's been our co-master in Tohunga uh, Kayarahi, our, our, our expert guide, in, guide for the show. And he's got the sort of other fuck about the lines about how she passed and Kuru Naituku, and there's a lot about where she passed away, the pools in Tapuya, uh, where she was... Um, Scolded and, and burnt within the geyser explosion and 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 hot pools, 
and and also the areas that Te Naitutu uh, spent her, her time near Asia Muri and Poatuloa, which is a, a, another rock cave area, which seemed to be one of her places where where she lived in her cave and where Hatipata was incarcerated. And it was that's about a couple of cave kilometres on the junction of the Waikato River, but just on State Highway 1, and a couple of caves down from there is where the rock, the Kofatu or Hatipata sits. And that's the rock that you pass on State Highway 1, going up through Atiamuri, up towards Hamilton. And a lot of people uh, stop by to, to visit the rock, and there's a beautiful um, inset to that rock, which we were able to film, and we used drone footage that we can utilise, utilise that and those special tapu places to be able to bring that into the AV and the beautiful visuals in the show. Um, so really bring Manda to these Wahi tapu, these special places, and be able to share that in our caltake and our offering of this, this story as well. The thing for us um, in terms of that element, we do know that Hakipatu ransacked the caves and for us, there's, and that's been quite a year, you know, uh, you know that, that element of, you know, relationship and, and, and the challenge for us is building this kind of love relationship, this forbidden love, and then him being ransacked in the cage. So we've had to kind of create narrative reasons of why we perceived he got so frustrated and then ransacked the cage, killed all her pets, her mokai, her birds, and, and stole um, Tonga from the, the cave, which was Tonga that he was able to utilise to really bring up his testimony status when he returned home. Because uh, Kurunaitsuka is also known as a phenomenal weaver. Uh, her hands are so strong and her her abilities, you know, like two, three times the strength of a of a of a normal human. So she was able to do things which humans couldn't do and so her weaving was just impeccable and her creation of weapons was, was impeccable as she really grabbed on the armor of of, of her, her her womanhood and, and that of humankind and learning and so she learned a lot also of Hachipatsu and then was able to take those, those, that knowledge and then take it on up to another level as well. So, and her observation of humans. So it, it does have, within our Pakaro, um, the, the journey when Hachipatsu escaped and ran back, took them back through to the, the thermal areas of, of, of the Puya and, and near Pakaro, whatever, where uh, the thermal zone there. And that was Hachipatsu in one of his, his areas where he would swim. And he knew that area extremely well, so he knew once he was there, he was on a lot stronger territory than than Kudinaitu do. But we do have a bit of a twist in our one, which I won't share with you. I'll let your performers come through as to what happens at, at, at the end of that, that story. And, and the beautiful thing I guess, think of this is a lot of it would be conjecture as well, because there was only Hatsupatsu and Kudinaitu in that moment there. So we put an offering as to what could have happened. That was a big part of the transformation and the change of arc and the way Hatsi Patsu then went about his life following that um, exchange with Kudinaituku. That, in the end, um, as we always know, history is written by those who, who, who survived or, or by those who, who won the battle. So they obviously put their lens on it. So we're also offering another lens and, and trying to balance the equation and have more of Kudinaituku's perspective in that, um, that part of things as well, which make, we're looking, really looking forward to seeing how people respond to that and, and those potentials that we've put in as, as our offerings for the show. I think that was one of the parts that, I, that really stood out to me because there's some visions of the Pūraka that I've read where there isn't that romance in the element as you talked about. So it was really interesting to see that kind of you're taking your perspective on it and hearing it, the reasonings behind that as well. I did want to ask about one other aspect of the show in particular and that's kind of the, the, the way it's designed to be performed. 
and the fact that it's modelled after the theatrics of De La Guada. What was the reasoning behind choosing to do it that way? Was it What was it trying to evoke from the audience? For me, it was because De La Guada, I spent five years with De La Guada and performed with them in London, Las Vegas, South America, and, and Buenos Aires. I also got opportunities to go to Berlin, Amsterdam, and Seoul. And then the last season I did with them, my fifth year on the contract, well, my body was a little bit worn out after 887 shows. I think I did of that show, and it is one of the big top three shows created of all time. It is incredible. Bisha Bisha was the name of that show. It is absolutely amazing. It's an immersive experience. The audience band together, 750 were in London at the Roundhouse, jammed in, and the whole whole thing is on top of the audience. And it was such a unique experience. It really flipped what theatre could be. It really hit London by storm in 1999-2000. And that's when I joined the cast. Um, pretty lucky, 1800 auditioned, and I got one of the 15 slots. So it was a really beautiful break for me. And Manchester United football contract equivalent for the arts is what I thought it was. And, and so then for me, being able to go and bring these skills back to Aotearoa and three-dimensionally uh, tell our uh, Māori storytelling was what that, bringing those skills and coming back home um, uh, offered uh, for, for getting Kiwis to fly and, and, and allowing our stories to go three-dimensionally. In my first show, Māori, One Man Against the Gods, and my second show, Tiki Tane Māhu, the music of Tiki Tane and, and Sam Trevenic, who toured with us for that show, they, they were on the cinema stages, so the audience sat in the audience and watched uh, into the... And, and so we, we did break the fourth wall in the um, cinema march line uh, in Maui where we had aerials beyond, so we had hooked up some uh, trusting within the auditorium and, and the area now we filed four and they flew out from the rural boxes, or the boxes, and flew right in the auditorium. So we were one of the first shows in the world to ever pull that off, which was awesome. We did, we did the musical on Broadway by a year and also Mary Poppins uh, on their West End by a year as well. So it was really great. My London climbers helped us teach the German climbers to make that work. And so we had a bit of an immersive experience, but not the immersive experience that De La Guada was. So this has been my aspiration, because De La Guada's never come to Aotearoa Shore, was to be able to create a scenario so that we could do our storytelling bit in this more immersive space. So for those audience who are standing in theatre, uh, you're right up beside the catwalk where, where we're all around you within our flying and, and performance and you're really immersed in the story. So you are the Mahere, you are the forest, you are the thermal geysers as well and, and you're just part of the absolute nature and environment that they've created and I try and work it so we create the audience in this bubble and we really want to make everything so slick and clean so that you can stay in that and become a bubble of entrancement um, and really to spend yourself within the story and the narrative and the journey and, and feel like you are um, on the ride with, with Hatsu Patsu and, and also on the ride with Kuri Naisuka as well. So, it's a, yeah, for me it was a chance that it is an homage to uh, De La Guada and, and bring that experience back to New Zealanders. So, um, they have been definitely immersive shows in, in Aotearoa, but they're rare and uh, in this kind of nature and, and with this kind of setup. Technically, it's a massive setup to do this. I think we had six trucks to get all our stuff in for Key Theatre. So, as Key was saying, it was the biggest amount um, of trucks that you've seen for a show in that under the space. It's definitely epic when you go in there in terms of going. The setup is pretty impressive. And that's led by Sam Johnston, our technical manager and regional designer, and our U crew. And the components uh, for me were, as an audience, you were just you were a part of the journey. So even in Key Theatre, we have a different setting to the warehouse performances um, that we're doing that in Christchurch and Rotorua, and we've finished the Wellington season, so it's in Aotearoa, these are the arts. In Key Theatre, you get the chance to either stand and have that really nice experience, or you can sit in the balcony or the gods um, level 
and watch the show. I call it from the home every round. And, um, and then you're, you're really seeing it from kind of the outside in as well. So there's quite awesome perspectives to see the show. And see it's, been, it's a beautiful setup inside there. So it's, it's very different to the Wellington show that we did because of that other setting option. So it provides those who, who couldn't stand for 20 minutes uh, to be able to sit and watch on that element. And for us, it's also a great opportunity to be able to really tie in the the, the the possibility of diverse experience and making people feel like you are absolutely part of this journey together with the other car. That was Artistic Director and Writer Tane Mahuta Gray speaking on Hatupatu Kuru Naitoku, A Forbidden Love. The show is only on for two more nights in Tamaki Makoto at the Q Theatre, so make sure you grab your tickets.
What's a seven-letter word for street fighter? Brawler. Hey, what's happening at Ponsonby Social Club this week? Investigators live with support from Andy JV and Grantis. And tomorrow, Maz Boo Q with support from Wagwan, followed by DJs Chip Matthews, V and Katia. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Tracks at Motet for a day filled with tramtastic fun at the ever popular live day, Trams, Sunday, March 17th. Check out their stunning fleet of trams, including their double decker tram, Big Ben. Keep track of your rides throughout the day with a tram tracker card. Plus, you can even make your own mini tram to take home. Motet's live day, Trams, Sunday, March 17th, 10 a.m. till 4 p.m., included in general entry. Find out more at motat.nz. Beloved Scottish band Teenage Fan Club are heading to New Zealand, and we have tickets to give away. How do you get your sticky hands on them? Well, you need a B card. And to listen to 95 BFM Drive all week for your cue to enter. Teenage Fan Club, Friday, March 15 at the Power Station. Get your tickets quick from FrontierTouring.com. At this radio station, we do our utmost to abide by the Broadcasting Standards Authority and their rules and guidelines. If you seriously think we've crossed the line on air, give us a call on 309 4831 within 20 working days of the broadcast date and tell us about it. We'll be able to help you out and tell you the procedure if you wish to make a formal complaint to the Broadcasting Standards Authority. Fuck knuckles, cock and piss. Balls. Thank you. Vous êtes en train d'écouter 95 BFM. On La Tapu, Saturday the 9th of March, Artspace Aotearoa will be exploring the question, Do I Need Territory? in the In and Out of It Symposium. The panel will feature a range of art historians, including Christina Barton. I spoke to Tina on some of the topics she will be exploring at the symposium, including the artist's estate and the correspondence between art history and exhibition making. We'll Can you begin by telling us a bit about your background and experience in art history? I studied art history in the 1980s, first at Canterbury and then at Auckland University. I did a master's thesis at Auckland, canvassing a history of post-object art in New Zealand. And over quite a long career, I have worked either at university or within various art galleries around the country. I guess 
I call myself an art historian because one of the key roles that I've played is as a teacher. I taught art history at Victoria University of Wellington when I became director of the Adam Art Gallery. And over that time, I focused specifically on art in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and developed a fairly decent knowledge of the history of art as it's been told through the literature and through the collections of galleries around the country. But my real interest is in recent and contemporary art, and so I brought that to my teaching and to my writing and eventually to my curating, which has been a very important part of my practice. And I'm now trying to sort of draw on my experience and continue to make myself useful within the art system here, which I'm deeply dedicated to. Um, can you tell us what is the artist's estate? One aspect of what I've done over the years is work with particular artists in the art system. But obviously we all grow old and I'm now getting to the point where I am noticing that some of our senior artists are dying. And it's made me think about what happens after they've gone. Do we just forget about them? What happens to the work that still lies in their studios and um, in their homes? Who is going to keep their names and their practices alive? So the artist's estate is very simply what they leave behind them when they die, uh, what is in their studio, uh, the works that they have not sold that are not in private or public collections. And it's that next generation, the families, the partners, the associates, who are granted the responsibility of caring for those material possessions. And how we do that, I think, is something that we need to think about and develop good strategies for. I mean, what happens usually is family doesn't know what to do with things. They may send everything off to the auction house, the works get sold, and off they go out into the world. And then it's really in the lap of the gods what happens to the reputation of that artist and to their ability to continue to inform and contribute to contemporary culture. And in particular, I've had the good fortune to work with two artists who've both passed now, Billy Apple, Auckland-based conceptual artist, and Vivian Lynn, who uh, lived in Wellington. And I have the great privilege of having access to their studios, and I'm still helping people left behind in caring for these artworks and also the archives, and which is really the key to understanding their motivation and the history of their lives as artists. What is the correspondence between art history and exhibition making? I think that it's a two-way relationship. Every exhibition probably builds on the practices of art history. So every time that you go to an exhibition and you see a selection of works on the wall, someone has made decisions about what to include and how to include it. Mm. And they've also put together words that build on the conventions of the discipline of art history. So art history is there in the organization and presentation of every exhibition. An exhibition also can inform art history. It can provide us with the raw material from which histories are written. 
so it's a, it's a mutual interaction. How can art help us to understand the past and in turn who we are and why we are here? Artists gets made and it's usually a material object that can survive through time. How it survives, whether it survives, will inevitably tell us about the values that we apply to material objects. And as time goes on, those material objects are like a clue to the past. And we, we are obligated in some way to care for that object and to continue to understand how it functions in its original moment, and how it functions in our own present. And that is not a fixed thing. It is constantly moving. What I love about art history is we are constantly having to revise our stories about objects because we, of course, are changing. We have an obligation to being as accurate as we can possibly be as to the motives and reasons and occasions of the making of those things so that we do move forward with a sense of understanding that is based on accurate knowledge. So, you know, past is there to be mined in the present. It can shape us in the present. It can help us move forward into the future. That was art historian Christina Burton speaking to me about what ideas she will be exploring at Art Spaces, the In and Out of It Symposium.
The 95 BFM Art Guide on various artists. It's paintings in that. It's time for the Art Guide for this week. Tonight, Ramare, Friday the 23rd of February. Hatipatu, Kuru Naituku, A Forbidden Love, show that we reported on earlier. The show's on tonight, and we'll be playing one more time tomorrow night at Q Theatre, so make sure you get those tickets. The last two nights you can see the show. Tomorrow, tomorrow, Rahoroi, Saturday the 24th of... No, it's not February anymore, is it? Tomorrow, Rahoroi, all the same, but that would be the 2nd of March, is B-Rave, of course. So, get your tickets from under the get radar. Get tickets for B-Rave, yeah. Come on, guys. Make sure you snatch them up before you're all gone, because it's going to be a blast. It's Only B-rave $15, time. too. Only $15. That's a good deal. That's a steal. Um, we've also got... The chair exhibition, which is super cool. It's a story of design and making in Aotearoa. And that's closing on the Sunday, the 3rd of March. So if you haven't gotten along to that yet. That's amazing. It's happening yeah. at Object Space in Ponsonby. Nicholas, you've been. I've been, I went with a friend, a designer friend. A bit of a mistake because I was like, cool, chairs. And she was like, look at how they carve this part of the chair. And <laughs> but it's, it's really is amazing, yeah. It's awesome. If you have something you want on the art guide, get in touch at arts at 95bfm.com. Yeah. That was the 95BFM art guide. Ko ira te hōtaka katoa mō tēnei wiki. Nei te mihi kia koto katoa e kōrero mai kio mō tēnei rā. That's all for us on Various Artists for today. Thank you to everyone who spoke with us. Artistic director and writer, Tane Mahuta Gray. On my end, art historian, Christina Barton, and musician and composer for Red Mole of Romance, Ewan Collins. Neida hoki kia koto e ana. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can listen back to all of these pieces on 95bfm.com. Ka hoki mai mātoa e tera wiki. Next up is Land of the Good Groove with Nigel. You're listening to 95BFM.
That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-cut. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.